welcome to episode 44 of History Does You. Today we'll be talking about nuclear weapons and grand strategy, which I'm very excited about. We recently did our first episode regarding nuclear weapons with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I thought it would be an interesting topic to continue to explore. And in this episode, we kind of explore really focusing kind of on the American perspective, but also answering broader questions about why states pursue nuclear weapons, how nuclear weapons have been used in foreign policy in the past, how it's being used presently, and then what role they'll play, not just in American foreign policy, but really in foreign policy across the globe, especially as we move more into this multipolar world, or as some scholars kind of call it the return the great power competition. So I think it'll be interesting to kind of look at how nuclear weapons, how they played a role, how strategists and experts kind of assess the use of these weapons, what role they'll play, all of that. So those are kind of some of the broader topics we'll be covering. So it's kind of a wide-ranging interview. Definitely one of my favorite, again, nuclear weapons, I think are always fascinating. There are recent phenomena. They've only been used twice in world conflict, and yet there are still thousands upon thousands of nuclear weapons with a variety of states that use them. So looking at how they were used in the Cold War and how they're being used now and what role they'll play in the future are all fascinating. So I hope you enjoy your interview with Dr. Gavin. I definitely did. It's wide ranging. He offers excellent expertise and perspective on these weapons and what role they play in the world. So I hope you enjoy the interview. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Francis Gavin. He is the Giovanni Agnelli Distinguished Professor and the inaugural director of the Henry A. Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at John Hopson's School of Advanced International Studies. In 2013, he was appointed the first Frank Stanton Chair in Nuclear Security Policy Studies and Professor of Political Science at MIT. Before joining MIT, he was the Tom Slick Professor of International Affairs and the director of the Robert S. Strauss Center for the International Security and Law at the University of Texas. He's written numerous books about nuclear policy, including Nuclear Statecraft, History and Strategy in America's Atomic Age, and Nuclear Weapons in American Grand Strategy. So welcome on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And to start off, what is your favorite subject of history, the research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in nuclear policy? So the wonderful thing about history is that pretty much all of it is interesting. And in fact, I have been in a quarantine. One of my projects has been to kind of reread the Oxford history of the United States, about seven or eight volumes, very hefty. And so going back and trying to understand the history of the United States, which the wonderful thing about history is that there's an endless array of interesting subjects. My interest in nuclear policy, though, very specifically and unexpectedly. My first book was on the history of international monetary relations, and particularly American foreign economic policy after the Second World War. And I was looking at how the United States dealt with what was called the balance of payments crisis. Essentially, the United States was spending more abroad than it was bringing in. And because of the way the Bret Woods monetary system was structured with a fixed exchange rate, those excess dollars could be turned into the United States gold. And over time, there was a concern that that gold drain would generate deeper economic problems. And much of this was based on policymakers understanding, sometimes correct, sometimes incorrect, of what had generated the crisis that had led to the Great Depression. And of course, in their minds, 
the Great Depression had led to the rise of autarkies, which had led to the rise of aggressive states that had created the Second World War. So it was kind of an oversimplification, but that's how it sort of worked in our mind. When policymakers got together to say, well, how do we reduce this deficit? One of the most tempting and promising categories was the cost of U.S. troops and their families stationed abroad, meaning that the 300,000 troops that were in West Germany and their families, they were paid in dollars. Those dollars went into buying things in West Germany. Those dollars accumulated and then were turned back to the United States and the West Germans often ask for gold in, in return. And so many economists and treasury officials said, look, we've got to reduce the amount of troops there. What this did was generate a whole series of discussions about the purpose of those troops. And in the end, those troops were kept there and other arrangements were dealt to deal with the balance of payments deficit. But what became clear to me was that there was a causal link that few people had really thought about. The troops were in West Germany, obviously, to help defend be part of NATO's defense of Western Europe and West Germany. But they were there for another reason, which was to reassure the West Germans and to reassure them so that they wouldn't get their own atomic weapons. And given that France and Great Britain had developed atomic weapons and other countries ranging from Sweden to Switzerland to Italy in Europe and countries around the world, including places like Australia, Taiwan and South Korea, had at least explored the idea of nuclear weapons. The United States, for any number of reasons, saw this as inimical to its interest and to stability and had developed during the same time period a very vigorous nuclear nonproliferation policy, which then also had certain implications for its nuclear strategy. Meaning, if you're going to tell the West Germans, look, you can't have your own nuclear weapons, they're going to say, well, how are you going to protect us? Especially when we're facing a Soviet behemoth that has far more conventional forces than we have. So the United States and NATO has to develop a nuclear strategy that's reassuring. Now, that nuclear strategy can't be one that says, you know what, we're going to use nuclear weapons as Soviet troops take over Western Germany and bomb the hell out of your territory. The only logical strategy that's going to reassure the West Germans and reduce their temptation to get nuclear weapons would be a nuclear strategy that was preemptive, meaning that as the Soviets were mobilizing, we would actually target and hit their forces before they even left the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, which meant that you had to have a certain type of nuclear strategy. It was preemptive, focused on counterforce. And as you can see, it was very dangerous. And we've always known that strategy was there, but the explanations we had for it were largely focused on things like bureaucratic politics and the military liking these weapons. And this, while it's a very complicated story and has a lot of threads, highlights why I like history. Because the story I just told you very briefly involved a variety of discrete topics, international monetary policy, alliance relationships, the U.S. nuclear nonproliferation policy, NATO policy, and U.S. strategic nuclear policy for at least five different topics. If you were to look at how it's typically studied, those subjects are looked in isolation from each other, but they make no sense unless they're connected. One of the great things about history is that by going through the documents, you can see these connections from something as wild as America's international monetary policy to the strategy of flexible response. And so that's how I got into it. I didn't plan to get into it. I followed the documents. There's a whole story about a series of documents I found that alerted me to this issue that I can tell if you're interested. 
But that's sort of the kind of bigger picture of how I got pulled into nuclear issues. Great. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in your field? I know you just mentioned those documents. So whether it's like researching for books or sources, what are some of those challenges? Sure. The biggest challenge in studying anything in sort of nuclear strategy and statecraft is the fact that what we really care about is the history of something that didn't happen, which is the history of thermonuclear war. We've never had a thermonuclear war. We've only had two incidences of nuclear use against the state in war in August 1945, when the United States used it against Japan. And we only have nine nuclear weapons states. So what political scientists and economists call our N, the amount of cases, is really, really low. But again, the most important question we face is, why has there never been a thermonuclear war? And it's epistemologically impossible to answer that question, right? And so what you do, you develop a bunch of hypotheses, a variety of theories, some proxies, but ultimately we don't know. And as a historian, I'm comfortable with that. In the world of policy and in the world of social science theory, people aren't comfortable with that. They say, well, nuclear deterrence prevented the Soviets from going into Western Europe. That's a very plausible hypothesis. I actually think it's probably right, but it can't be proved. You could make the case that without nuclear weapons, the Soviets wouldn't have moved into Western Europe for any number of reasons. And the problem with deterrence is you can only examine whether it worked or not ex post after it didn't work. And we've never had a thermonuclear war, so we don't know what causes them. So methodologically, but you can't ignore it, right? Because it's the most important, if we did have one, it would be a disaster. So it's incredibly challenging to get any traction or certainty about it. And there's this enormous literature that's very good that makes a variety of assertions about causality with nuclear weapons. It's unprovable and people get very frustrated when you point that out to them, but that's what the greatest challenge is. And just in terms of some broader questions about nuclear weapons, why do states pursue nuclear weapons? Generally, what are the cost benefits of having a nuclear weapons program? So I would say it has changed over time. And we've been in the nuclear nuclear era for eight decades, and the incentives have shifted a lot. In the immediate aftermath of World War II, if you looked around and tried to say, what are some of the factors that drive international relations? How is the international system shaped? You would have just seen half a century of wars of conquest and invasion, intense geopolitical and ideological rivalry, and a world in which states had lots of reasons to feel insecure. And the most important things that nuclear weapons can provide, at least theoretically, is what we might call invasion insurance that if a state looks like they're about to conquer you, you could deliver unimaginable damage to them, making it not worth their while. And in the context of the immediate post-World War II world, that's a pretty attractive proposition, to have a technology that guarantees other states wouldn't conquer you. So that's one reason that states want them. Another reason that states want them is the prestige that's associated with it, again, after World War II. If you look at France and Great Britain, France maybe somewhat, Great Britain less, 
the fear of invasion was probably less pressing. But there was a sense that if you're a great power, you should have the most cutting edge form of technology, regardless of the cost, if you want to be in the club of great powers. So those were the two early motivations. And if you look at the states that wanted the most in the beginning, it was usually those either who feared, who had some territorial division, right? Makes sense that two states in the Korean Peninsula wanted. It makes sense that states in South Asia wanted or states in the Middle East might want it because of unresolved territorial issues that could lead to a war of conquest. And then those states who thought because of their status in the world, they should have it. You know, Britain, France, maybe over time you think to yourself of a country like India or Brazil who thought about it for a while, the prestige and status purposes. Over time, both of those issues have waned. Many of the underlying forces that drove the international system in the mid-20th century, concerns that would lead to invasion are less prominent now. There's less of a sense that it doesn't mean that great power war can't happen. doesn't mean that a big state can't take a little state. But it's probably the likelihood, the incentive for it has reduced dramatically. So say you're Poland, having the American guarantee being in NATO, yeah, that looks pretty good. And I don't like Russia. Russia's pretty bad. I'm separated by the Ukraine. It doesn't look like Russia's going to invade anytime soon. If you're... Brazil and Argentina, you've worked out your issues to a certain extent. Nuclear weapons, it turns out, don't really provide you much else other than invasion insurance. They're not a very effective tool to, say, negotiate a trade agreement or to deal with, say, a public health crisis. They're good for one thing and one thing only, for the most part. And that one thing has sort of gone away, not disappeared completely, but really dissipated. And then the second, it's seen as less prestigious, the norm of having nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are seen not as a reflection of great power status per se, but as a sort of a, an antiquated and potentially morally deeply problematic technology that you really get, it's not especially virtuous. In fact, you're seen as kind of, if you develop a new weapon, you're seen as an outlier in the international system. And the states that had them previously are encouraged to do something to get rid of. So all the incentives have changed. Now that could shift again. We're in an interesting period right now, but I think there's a lot less incentive. It used to be that what you focused on was could a state, did it have the capability and the resources and the know-how to build it? And if so, there was a strong presumption given the state of the international system that they would be tempted to explore a program. And many states did. Now, far more states could do it if they wanted to. It's just not worth the costs, the exposure, the risks, and the opprobrium. And plus, the U.S. has worked actively both in positive and negative ways to discourage states from going down that path. And to kind of get into American grand strategy and nuclear weapons, I know you mentioned Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but at the end of World War II, how did those atomic bombings impact the world? Did the Truman administration seek to send a message to the rest of the world or to a specific state about this new weapon? Oh, I think the important thing to remember is that we make a lot of assumptions ex post after the fact about what the U.S. was trying to do. But one of the things I've sort of been convinced by looking at the documents, regardless of whether the decision was right or wrong, 
over the long haul, and there's great debate about this. At the time, the Truman administration was facing a real challenge. And the challenge was it had promised to deliver unconditional victory and unconditional surrender to Japan. The war in Europe was over, and the United States public was growing weary of war. And frankly, the U.S. was actually running out of troops. And the United States faced an incredibly daunting, difficult military operation if it was to defeat Japan in the way it said it would. And so the United States faced a series of unpleasant choices. It could not seek unconditional surrender, which is what it had promised and had delivered with Germany. And remember, Japan had millions of troops still in China. It had not really defeated in a lot of places. It still had a thoroughgoing military. And there was no guarantee if you didn't defeat them completely that that wouldn't allow them to again reemerge. There were all sorts of problems with that. So that option was difficult. There was the option of carrying through various other non-nuclear military plans, which involved a combination of continuing a blockade that would starve civilians, conventional firebombing that was unbelievably gruesome, and then an invasion of the home islands that likely would have led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of American soldiers at a time when the U.S. public was tired of war, or this weapon that promised to deliver a quick end to the war. And what I'm saying is that's how the choice looked to the Truman administration at the time. You know, there's lots of arguments of trying to signal to the Soviets, this, that, and the other thing. And that may have been part of the motivation. But in real time, President Truman, this is what he's faced with. And the other thing I'll say is that we now know that there was a third bomb. And Truman, after getting reports of how horrific the killings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, didn't want to use a third bomb and actually was quite tormented by the results of this. And I think moved in many of his policies afterwards to make it less likely and harder that nuclear weapons would be used. So it's the thing one has to remember when looking at policy choices is not just to look at the after fact ex post what we know happened, but to think about and empathize with the dilemmas at the time. And there weren't any good decisions, right? You could have just said, you know what, we're going to sign whatever treaty Japan is willing to sign, even though it's as far removed from what we promised as possible and deal with those consequences. We could continue to try to starve Japan and, and bomb the hell out of it and then plan for an invasion given those consequences. So it was not an easy choice. And I'm not saying it was the right choice, but it was the war did end up the Japanese emperor intervened, and you ended up getting a end of the war that, from America's point of view, probably was not a terrible outcome and certainly avoided hundreds of thousands of American troops dying. Now, on the other hand, you have the stain, the moral stain of using this terrible weapon and the unbelievable gruesome death and destruction of many innocent people, including, you know, when you go to Hiroshima, you see... Um, I mean, it's remarkable and it's moving. And, you know, for example, you see thousands of Koreans who died in Hiroshima who were clearly there not of their own free will and not under good circumstances. You also see children that died because children were working in the factories in downtown Hiroshima. So the point is to sort of say, what did it look like to policymakers at the time? 
And then in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, after those bombings, what role did U.S. policymakers believe that nuclear weapons would play in American foreign policy? So I would say it's important to remember that we think of the Cold War beginning right after the Second World War and then it kind of continuing and you know, it was kind of 1945 to 1989 period uninterrupted. And that's not how it was experienced at the time. I would say in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, what people forget is the U.S. military demobilized. The United States didn't build very many nuclear weapons. They weren't organized in a way that made their use very likely or easy. And when it appeared that the Cold War was really beginning, starting a year or two after the end of the Second World War and really intensifying in 47 and 48, U.S. policy focused on political and economic tools, not military tools. There was an assumption that the Soviet Union, which had been devastated during the Second World War, that had lost 25 million of its citizens, that its economy had been ravaged, and was probably overburdened already with occupying the territories it had, that it really had no interest in starting a war, and that the American nuclear monopoly could probably suffice to hold the Soviets at bay. That changed in the late 40s when the Americans, when the Soviets developed their own nuclear weapons, when the Chinese uh, revolution took place and the Korean War happened. And then once the Soviet Union went on to acquire atomic weapons, did U.S. policymakers' calculus kind of change in terms of the U.S. didn't have a monopoly on these weapons, and now that a perceived rival had acquired these weapons? And how did that play into the mind of U.S. policymakers, both in the political side of things and in the military? What you might call the sort of long 1950, this period from 1949 to late 1950, where America's strategic situation changed and a variety of things happened. First, in August of 1945, the Soviets detonated an atomic bomb. Everyone expected the Soviets would eventually get the bomb. It happened much quicker. And there was a concern that, well, the Soviets had been aggressive before without nuclear weapons. What would they be like afterwards? A few weeks, a couple months later, the Chinese Communist Party prevailed over the nationalists and Chiang Kai-shek, who escaped to Taiwan and declared the People's Republic of China, suddenly the most populous country in the world, was communist and was concerned that the balance of power would shift. Less than a year later, North Korea invaded South Korea. A lot of controversy over this, but at least the Calcutta's Dean Acheson in January 1950 made it seem as if the U.S. wouldn't come to its defense. But in the summer of 1950, the Truman administration calculated or was concerned that this kind of aggression, if not stopped, would send a signal to the communist world that the U.S. wouldn't do things to stop this kind of aggression. And then finally, in the late fall of 1950, when the United States went past the 38th parallel and started pushing North Korean troops to the Yalu River, River, the People's Republic of China and its army intervened directly against the United States. And U.S. decision makers thought there's absolutely no way, first of all, North Korea would invade South unless they've gotten the go-ahead from Stalin. And then there was no way that the Chinese would intervene against the United States unless they'd gotten the go-ahead from Stalin. And there was this great concern that because the Soviet Union now had nuclear weapons, it felt emboldened. And combined with its overwhelming conventional strength and the fact that 
large areas of the world were vulnerable and exposed, particularly in Western Europe, but also throughout East Asia, places like Japan and in the greater Middle East, that the Soviets, if they wanted to, could move and take these areas. Not only that, the United States, as it became bogged down in this war in the Korean Peninsula, a war that in some senses geostrategically really wasn't that important, the Soviets could make a move. And at that point, the United States shifted to a fairly dramatic and massive military rearmament, which focused largely on building nuclear weapons that would be used to deterrence fail to blunt Soviet conventional superiority and easier access to these vulnerable areas. So nuclear weapons then from the early 50s on took a far more central place in U.S. strategic planning. And maybe skipping ahead a little bit to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which some would argue was the closest to thermonuclear war during the Cold War. How did that crisis affect American strategy? Did it harden the resolve of policymakers or did it make them wary of the role of nuclear weapons and the potential destruction that could come with them? The latter. I think the Cuban Missile Crisis was the point in which both American and Soviet leaders realized they had come really, really close to a dangerous crisis and that they needed to do something to prevent it. Now, both sides responded differently. The Soviets began a fairly dramatic nuclear arms buildup because they felt as if they had been caught far more vulnerable to America's strategic forces. But both sides, I think, recognized that they should move both to limit the role of nuclear weapons, perhaps through arms control, and this is where you get the limited test ban treaty. And then when the Johnson administration comes in, sort of an active pursuit of avenues of looking for arms control, but also to try to resolve the underlying political issues that were driving this tension. And so it was very much a key moment where I think both sides saw how dangerous the crisis was and looked to find ways to minimize that danger in the future. And then in the later 1970s and the 80s and heading towards the end of the Cold War, how did the U.S. and Soviet Union sort of go about trying to lower the number of weapons each country had? Was it through negotiation or quid pro quos? How did that dynamic kind of play in the later decades of the Cold War? So in the early 60s, there were a group of intellectuals led largely by people like Thomas Schelling, but Henry Kissinger was involved in this. Uh, a lot of academics from sort of Cambridge, the MIT, Harvard world, Rand, the think tank, who made the case that through arms control and ensuring mutual vulnerability, you could generate stability between two rivals. You could eliminate some of the uncertainty that could generate misperception and lead to an unwanted crisis or war. And there were efforts, they sort of began in the mid-60s, but they first reached fruit under the Nixon administration with the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty and the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which began a tradition of limiting both the number of weapons and the type of weapons with the goal of decreasing some of the factors that could lead to dangerous situations and to enshrine the idea that since both sides were vulnerable to what was called a second strike attack, meaning that neither side could eliminate in a first strike the other side's retaliatory capability or the other side that was hit first, it could respond with such devastating power that it would never be worth it to go first, that that reality meant that nuclear weapons really couldn't be used and that 
starting with that premise, you could start to do things to limit the different types of nuclear weapons and amounts of nuclear weapons, both to stabilize the relationship, but also to limit the salience of nuclear weapons in the relationship. And that began an important tradition, which continued even after the Cold War. And just to ask some concluding questions, both about kind of the role that nuclear weapons play today and maybe the future of their role. Do you think the absence of the Cold War and this bipolar international system that was the norm during that time has made the American public less aware of the capability of these weapons and kind of the role they've played in American foreign policy? Yes, absolutely. I think that it's one of the signs of the success of our policies is that it's a good thing that nuclear weapons are far more salient. You hear very little discussion or concern about the fear of a nuclear war. When I was growing up, there was very much a popular culture. I think to this day, the most viewed television show ever was The Day After, which was a show in 1983, I think on ABC. It looks pretty hokey in retrospect, but which was about a nuclear attack, I think, on Kansas and what things were like the day after. And again, it was watched more than the Super Bowl. And so there was, you know, there was around that time, there was Matt Broderick's first big movie, which was War Games. And there was a general sense in the culture that this was a possibility, one that was hanging over every aspect of life, even if it wasn't always front and center, people knew it was there. I don't think people think about it that way at all anymore. And there's a good and a bad side to that. The good side to it is that I think the odds of a nuclear war are far lower than they were during the Cold War. Even when people talk about so-called rogue states like North Korea, I still think that the dangers are far less, both in terms of likelihood and certainly in terms of scale, because the Soviet uh, nuclear arsenal was far more fearsome. The bad news is, is that the relevance and questions surrounding nuclear policy haven't gone away. To give the most obvious example, there is a plan for the United States to modernize its nuclear forces over the next 30 years, which will cost well in excess of a trillion dollars, and which will develop not more weapons, but weapons that have qualities and characteristics that make them more likely to be used. And the only time you ever want to think about nuclear weapons used is using them first, meaning that this money is going on making them not more bombs or more powerful bombs, but more stealthy bombs, more accurate bombs, more miniaturized bombs, bombs that could one could envision being used in battlefield circumstances where they would have increased military utility with perhaps lessening to a certain extent some of the horrific unintended consequences. And so there's an important debate to be had. Should we be making weapons and spending all this money on weapons that really are good for only one thing, which is preventing invasion and conquest? I don't think anyone thinks Canada or Mexico are coming from the U.S. anytime soon, and which would make our strategic forces more, at least externally, appear to be more useful. Yeah, that's an important debate to have, but that's not how the debate takes place. Nobody really has that debate, right? Because nuclear weapons haven't been to the front of how we think about things. So it's a two-edged sword, but you're absolutely right. Even on something like the great existential crisis of our day, which is climate change, it's very clear that one of the real things that can be done to ameliorate carbon emissions is civilian nuclear energy. 
But we need to have a debate about the danger of nuclear plants themselves, which I think probably aren't as dangerous as people think if there's all sorts of safety things one can do, but also about how proliferation proof they are. Or is there any indication that engaging in a robust civilian nuclear activities makes you more tempted or more capable of developing weapons? Like if you think about the states that are exploring civilian nuclear energy, they are places like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, probably the most sophisticated civilian nuclear energy um, producer outside of perhaps France right now, South Korea, right? All those states I mentioned have reasons for wanting to have nuclear weapons. And so that kind of debate should be had, but it's so far down, even in among policymakers discussions, it's seen as a sort of a obscure topic when in fact it actually affects everything. And generally, do you think nuclear weapons have made the world a safer place? <laughs> That's a great question. So I think there's a couple ways of cutting at it. Bearing in mind what I said to start this conversation was we can't know because you would have to say that there's a whole bunch of calculations you would have to make that are impossible to make but are interesting. The first is, in the absence of nuclear weapons, would there have been a World War III, meaning a fully mobilized conventional war similar to what had happened between 1914 and 1918 and 1939 and 1945, albeit one that would have been more destructive and even worse? And did nuclear weapons prevent this? This was the argument that John Lewis Gaddis made decades ago in the long piece. We can't know. I think when I was first studying this, my guess would have been yes. Increasingly over time, my guess is that no, for any number of reasons that wouldn't have happened. So there's that calculation and it's unanswerable. The second calculation is a interesting different one and it's very hard to make, but it involves risk probabilities and uncertainty. So the question would be whether you say consider the Cuban Missile Crisis a success. On first cut, you would say, given that nuclear weapons weren't used and the crisis was resolved, it was a success. But if, as people like Dean Rusk and President John Kennedy said, there was a, say, let's say a one in three chance that war could have happened, does the fact that it didn't happen mean it's a success? Meaning that seems to be a pretty unacceptable risk, even though we got away with it. And there's an interesting epistemological question here, just because things work out. Because if you ran the experiment 100 times, and let's say the risk was only 5%, the experiments run 100 times, and five times you have nuclear war, then whatever led you to that point was not a very good idea. But again, these are unanswerable questions. I think that we're now in this weird place where the, both the norm and the incentive to make nuclear weapons part of our grand strategy and to use them is increasingly seen as something, which is a good thing, which then begs the question, well, why do we have them and what do you do with them? And so it's a great question that you asked, narrowly from American interests as opposed to kind of the interest of the world. I actually think, and this is another thing I've changed my mind about, is that nuclear weapons have not served American interests. And for not for any idealistic reasons, but because nuclear weapons and their powers of deterrence have deterred the U.S., meaning that the U.S. emerged from the Second World War with more power than any state that ever 
existed. More economic power, more conventional military power, more technological and innovation power, and more, one might even say soft power. And in a non-nuclear world, that power would probably have been able to be used for any number of reasons to pursue American interests. The nuclear weapons are able to cancel out those forms of power in a lot of ways, so that a state like the Soviet Union that really had one-third the economic weight, certainly had no soft power, had a scholaric economic system, competed with the United States fairly evenly for quite some time, largely because it was a major nuclear weapons state. And that didn't benefit the U.S. So even though we came more than any other state were responsible for making nuclear weapons so salient in the international system, I think in the long run, it might have been a mistake for the United States to do so. And kind of with today with states like Iran and North Korea pursuing nuclear weapons for different reasons, do you think in some ways that has made this era regarding nuclear weapons more dangerous than the Cold War? Or do you think the Cold War has been more dangerous in terms of the chance of nuclear war? Because I guess, could you kind of get into the reasons why both Iran and North Korea pursue nuclear weapons and kind of what role they play in terms of the way we view nuclear weapons? Yeah, now the Cold War was much more dangerous. And I find it very frustrating when people try to argue otherwise, because when you had two massive highly mobilized hair-trigger nuclear forces aimed at each other between two major geopolitical ideological rivals who had the memory of the First and Second World War in the back of their head. It just doesn't compare with as dangerous as an Iranian or as dangerous as a North Korean nuclear capability is. Both states want the nuclear weapons for the reasons I mentioned earlier, for regime survival, right? Both regimes, in the absence of nuclear weapons, would be challenged largely by the United States into disappearance. And so here's a tool that can prevent the United States from doing that to you. The reason North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons it's not unlikely that the United States would have tried to find some way to change the regime. And if you're in the regime and you don't want that to happen, nuclear weapons are very appealing to you. Same with Iran, who has been under the scope of what threats to its regime since 1979 when it started. Neighbors, regional neighbors, be it Iraq, be it Israel, be it the Gulf states, and from the United States. And so Nuclear weapons are very appealing to it. And this gets to a larger point that people, when they look at who has nuclear weapons, they focus on the effects of the weapon. But what they really should understand is why does a state want them? And if a state wants them because they feel like their regime or their existence is threatened, you have a choice. Do you do something that continues to threaten the regime and prevent them from getting nuclear weapons, like we did with Iraq? Or do you think about removing that underlying threat? And... That's a hard question, right? Because North Korea is a gangster state that commits all sorts of atrocities and really doesn't deserve to exist. You know, Iran's a little trickier, right? It has more legitimacy. It's a problematic state that supports terrorism and has a set of values that we don't appreciate or and does things in the region that we don't like. On the other hand, does our both implicit and sometimes explicit sort of menacing threat to overthrow the regime, is that helpful in keeping them from running nuclear weapons? Again, that's, I'm not saying which way is right or wrong. It's just that people need to understand that these things don't happen in a vacuum and that when states feel threatened, nuclear weapons look very appealing to them. 
Now, maybe you want them to feel threatened and maybe you want to sort of drive them out of existence, but you should recognize that it's not going to be irrational that a state under those pressures is going to seek to prevent that by trying to get a weapon that is one way of guaranteeing its survival. And my final question is, what role do you think nuclear weapons will play in American foreign policy over the coming decades? Do you think that role is going to increase or decrease? I think this is a big debate that needs to be had because things are pulling in. On one hand, you can sense that there are increasing pressures for proliferation, especially with moving to a more multipolar world, to moving to a world where the U.S. has been less engaged and perhaps security commitments appear to be less robust. So you look at a Saudi Arabia, you look at the potential, there's some supply state out there that might be interested in it, like a Vietnam. You look at if relations with China over Taiwan get worse and the U.S. appears less interested in engaging, you could imagine in Japan, renewed interest in looking for its own protection. On the other hand, I do think that there's an increasing recognition that great power war should be avoided at all costs, uh, that there's really doesn't really make a lot of sense that even as horrific and desirable as World War I and World War II were, you could kind of follow a causal logic of why states engaged in the behavior they did that's kind of harder to come up with now, largely because the 19th and early part of the 20th century, land was valuable, populations were increasing, resources were seen as scarce. You know, most industrialized nations, particularly China, are shrinking in size. They're aging. Land is no longer really the great source of wealth or power that it once was. Technology is. So a lot of the dynamics have shifted. And people are kind of seeing that nuclear weapons are good for one scenario, preventing invasion, which isn't one that really a lot of states are dealing with. And so if you want forms of power that actually generate outcomes for you in the world, it's an expensive, blunt instrument. And so I think the U.S. may come to see rely less on it. So it's pulling in two different directions, it's unsure, but I think it's the kind of thing that we need a more vigorous debate about. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Gavin. Again, I think nuclear weapons are a really fascinating subject to explore, not just from a policy perspective, from also from a scientific perspective. And again, I think as Dr. Gavin puts it, they play such a different role, a wide role in how these weapons are used, not in conflict, but the idea of a conflict. And I think because as we kind of talked about and mentioned, because there isn't this Cold War, because there isn't this hypothetical threat of a nuclear exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States, that the role of nuclear weapons have sort of gone away. But again, there are all these sort of smaller conflicts right now, whether you look at Israel and Iran, North Korea, South Korea, India and Pakistan, all of which are more or less pursuing nuclear weapons or have nuclear weapons makes for a really dangerous environment. And what happens when the great powers such as the U.S. can't really control what those states do? Because again, nuclear weapons are sort of, as Dr. Gammon explains, it's this fail-safe option that sort of prevents states from being able to invade one another. I think you see, you know, Iraq in a lot of ways is the perfect example. Saddam Hussein actually had nuclear weapons, it would have been almost impossible to invade 
the country. Again, North Korea is the perfect example. If they hadn't had nuclear weapons, there's probably a good chance that at some point the U.S. would pursue some sort of regime change action. So you can kind of compare, and, and like I said, they're two different case studies, but you can kind of see how nuclear weapons are this deterrent that prevents conventional conflict, but also because it really hasn't ever happened, there's no case study to examine. For example, with great power competition, for example, which you know many scholars are now looking at with the rise of China and the destabilization of this liberal international order, there are case studies that kind of examine how does great power conflict play out? How do these powers interact with each other, whether it's the rise of Germany, interacting with France and Great Britain? Some scholars have even looked at ancient Rome, for example. There's just a wide range of examples to look at and sort of make assumptions and predict. Well, with nuclear weapons, we can't do that because it's only been used twice and it's never been used. There hasn't been a thermonuclear war and hopefully there never will be because that will be unbelievably bad. So I think, you know, those are just some of the challenges and some of the mysteries that to this day we kind of struggle to answer despite these technologies and especially from a policy perspective. So that's kind of just my perspective on the broader range of nuclear weapons Again, the history is sort of short, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, but nonetheless, super fascinating. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hope it gave you some perspective and there's a wide variety of scholarship. Dr. Gavin's written about it. There's lots of books about the making of the atomic weapons. There's, again, scholarship on what role they play now. So again, there's definitely a lot more to explore in this realm. I will definitely post some of that on social media, some of the books I kind of have read about it. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. 